Welcome to Cosmophonia. I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And today we're talking about sonification. Turning data into sound. Yes. Rolling like a stone. Yeah. So if you recorded the sound of a stone rolling down a hill, would that be data sonification? I think that would just be recording. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. So that is one thing that people sometimes think data sonification is. A literal recording of something. That is making sound. Yes. But if you were instead to record the trajectory of the stone rolling down the hill, and by record I mean take numbers about its precise position, momentum, velocity, and then convert that into sound, then... That would be sonification. Yes. Right. Yes. So data sonification... The turning of data into sound. Yeah, so you've heard of data visualization. This is a kind of that that uses sound. Mm Mm-hmm. Great. Yes. Um, (laughs) So why are we talking about this? Well, I think that it seems from my observations that in the past few years, this kind of sonification of specifically astronomical data has become very popular, or at least it's become popularized if it hasn't been isn't being literally done more than it was before do you think that that's true i do think it's true i think i mean astronomy and data sonification have a very very long history we'll get to kepler before too long but you know starting with the detections of the first pulsars there's been this impulse to relate astrophysical phenomena with sound and the pulsar case makes sense and it sets up a good model but it also sets up a number of kind of issues with sonification and astronomy the reason why pulsars made sense is because two things first we detect them as these intermittent signals whose frequencies are very very fast and this is because the pulsars are spinning very very quickly so that in and of itself has kind of sonic connotations because the fastest ones pulsate at rates that become audible to us as sound. The other thing with pulsars is that they were detected in the radio part of the spectrum. And for the last more than a century, we've had a relationship in the popular mind between sound and radio. So the idea being that if you detect something that is sound-like in the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum, it is a natural follow-up to then turn it into sound. So this has the good consequence of taking a complex astrophysical process, that involving the radio emission and rotation of a pulsar, and making it immediately graspable by a general audience. 
But at the same time, it kind of entrenches this misconception that radio actually is sound Mm -hmm. so that what you're hearing is the sound of a pulsar when in fact it is not the sound of a pulsar. It is the sound of light emitted from the pulsar being turned into sound. Right, yeah. And this has become so entrenched, like not even in just the popular imagination of what these things are, but even in the communication of certain research projects. Like I saw one recently where, I'm not going to call them out specifically, where they were using some kind of radio detection to determine something. I don't even remember what it was, but they were marketing it, or not marketing, they were describing it to the public as this is sound and I could not for the life of me when investigating their website determine whether they were actually listening to sonification or whether they were just using this word to say that they were detecting radio yeah I it's really very frustrating because this has become a ubiquitous thing and I understand the appeal from a scientist's perspective, especially from an astronomer's perspective, right? Astronomers are accustomed to having beautiful images that speak plainly, but it is much harder, and I say this as someone who's taught a lot of astronomy, it is much harder to explain underlying processes, right? Like when you know what they are, you can look at a picture and say, ah, look, I see the phenomenon at work. But it's another thing to communicate this is what's happening in a way that people understand. And I think the language of music and sound provides a kind of shortcut for astronomers to be like, care about this esoteric process that I've devoted my life to. Here, you hear it. It is sound, right? And as much as I appreciate the appeal, I also... It sort of bugs me because, first of all, if it's hard to explain further confusing the topic by saying it's something it's not doesn't help. And the other is that I think people deserve more credit for their ability to understand Mm -hmm. complex phenomena. I mean, you know, if I say, well, a pulsar is emitting radio light that immediately associates radio with light, which Mm -hmm. is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, that might not be an everyday association, but it's not hard to then add another sentence and say, you know, like the light you see, imagine what happens past red. Eventually it becomes radio. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that it's not intuitive for people to really understand what the electromagnetic spectrum is. They just need to be told what it is you know they don't need that much hand holding in fact a lot of people do know that radio is part of the electromagnetic spectrum and a lot of people also know that sound doesn't carry through space because there's no medium for it to be carried on and so I've noticed that I mean maybe this is just an issue with social media but occasionally I'll poke around on, you know, social media um, presences of even, you know, reliable organizations like NASA. And, you know, when they share things like this, they do say that it's sonification, but sometimes the language that they use to, like, hype it up can be a little misleading if you don't 
actively know what they're talking about already. And so there are two responses that I see to these kinds of social media posts. One, people being totally duped. And I don't mean that NASA is trying to dupe people. I'm just saying that, you know, they don't know what they're seeing. And so they just assume, oh, this is what space sounds like. Oh, this is wonderful. This is so cool. I never knew that space sounded like this. And the other kind of responses are, well, this is obviously fake. I know that sound doesn't travel <laughs> through space. That's not how it works. You're f- trying to fool me. NASA lies. And these people are not going to click through to like see the explanation of what it is. They're just going to become more entrenched in their kind of anti-science. You know, science is all like a big fake out or operation. And, you know, I don't think that that is doing justice to either of these parties by not being very clear about what it is that they're actually hearing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's why I think, you know, on this podcast, for example, we're pretty committed to using the right words to talk about things, in part because we trust the audience and also because there's really no value in oversimplifying if that oversimplifying comes at the great risk of misleading. Yeah. And... It's frustrating on another level, too, because, you know, sound as we think of it doesn't transmit through space. But there's actually a tremendous misopportunity here, which is to talk about acoustic phenomena that actually do exist in space, Mm. right? They're not audible by human ears, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of acoustic processes that are actually sound waves that occur in, in space. I mean, there have been a few famous examples like the low B-flat that's coming out of the center of the Perseus cluster of galaxies, but there's also acoustic turbulence that defines the inner structure of spiral galaxies. And these are literally sounds Mm -hmm. in that that's the kind of wave we're talking about, but that's almost never the subject of sonification. Yeah, and actually sometimes it has been. I saw there was one a, a number of years ago, I think it was from a, I don't know, it was from one of those things where they you know, extracted that sound wave and pitched it up like Mm. 20 octaves so that it would actually be audible. And that was kind of interesting, except that whoever did this also mixed it with other data sonification. So it was like, it was very unclear, like what you were actually hearing. And (laughs) this is not the fault of like NASA or the people who did this, but there's this Vice article. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this is... Mostly a problem with just like public science communication, not necessarily with the people who are doing this themselves. But the Vice article, I think, was something that the title was like, you thought sound didn't exist in space, but it does. (laughs) Or like scientists have discovered sound exists in space. And then the subtitle of the article was something like, in space, no one can hear you scream, except now they can. And it was like, you're completely like obscuring the fact that this is sound, but it's not audible sound. You know, physics have not changed so that people can now hear you scream in space. And that kind of thing just kind of frustrates me. Well, it's all very clickbaity. Yeah. And I mean, and again, like I said, I understand the appeal from an outreach perspective you know, but it is, <laughs> I don't want to sound curmudgeonly, but it's gone too far. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't really believe that. I, I do believe that for every good example, there are other examples that 
don't help as much as they want to help. Mm. So we should do two things. Well, okay, three things. We should talk about a good example. Mm -hmm. We should talk about the nature of astrophysical data so we know what it is we're sonifying. Mm -hmm. And then also, I, I feel like part of why this happens is that the process of sonification transforms an apparently objective thing mm -hmm. into a subjective musical object. Yeah. And that opens this realm of speculation and imagination, which is not inappropriate, right? But it does approach a slippery slope that one need not go down, but definitely comes near. We should probably talk about the LIGO example, because well, that's, that's a really good one. That's but a really good one. You should talk about that one. I think that we need to give a little credit to even the ones that maybe are kind of superficial in the kind of data that they communicate, such as the ones created from Chandra, I think it yeah, is. Yeah. And I mean, to give credit where credit is due, I feel like most astronomical images are also manipulations. Like they're mm -hmm. not even just a capture of what space looks like because telescopes have to use all kinds of different ways of recording data in order to make that image like infrared, for example, nobody can see that, but mm -hmm. they record that light and then that becomes trans, you know, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they change it into an image that we can actually see and make sense of. And then what Chandra does is they will take these images, which are already, you know, created to be kind of aesthetically pleasing. And I think part of this is because they're trying to reach, you know, visually impaired audiences. They can't see that, but they still want to experience this kind of aesthetic or and and also objective appreciation of astronomical data. And so then they'll translate, you know, certain aspects of the image into certain aspects of sound. And then that will create this nice little, you know, sound art object thing. Yeah. I mean, I think credit should go to anybody at this point who is creating sonifications, mm. because even though the idea is very old, I mean, I mentioned Kepler, right? Like this is Kepler engaged in data sonification 600 years ago, right? Yeah. So more on him another time or later. There is an image on our website at the bottom yeah. <laughs> of his sonifications. That's right. You know, so it's an old idea, but the modern practice of using computers to transform data into sound, that's still a pretty, it's a burgeoning practice, right? Like you can't at the moment, as far as I know, there's nowhere you can go to take a class on sonification, right? Maybe there's one or two uh, sprinkled around the world, but it's not an established part of astro of any scientific practice, really. So anybody who's doing it is helping to pioneer the techniques. And, you know, the critiques that we're kind of offering are, I, I don't think, inappropriate because it's a young discipline. So it's kind of like we need to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And just to build on what you were saying with Chandra data, astronomical data traditionally is comes in the form of images, right? The images that the public sees to an astronomer are the data. There is no astronomical image that one does research on without putting it through a tremendous amount of processing for many, many reasons. And a lot of the astronomers who have dealt with sonification have, like you said, they've come at it from the perspective of accessibility, right? Because astronomy, even in non-optical parts of the spectrum, right, like Chandra operating in the X-ray, 
it is still a fundamentally visual science. So the idea of taking an image, which is really just a grid full of pixels, and each pixel literally just has a value that's its brightness, it's a pretty straightforward exercise to say, well, instead of rendering that value as the brightness of a pixel in a certain color, we just make it the loudness of a sound at a certain frequency, yeah. right? So that's how you get this current kind of batch of image sonifications. It's interesting to think about that as a way of making astronomical data more accessible. And I actually think those examples, even though they are among the more straightforward and they're also among the less prone towards misunderstanding, because it's usually pretty clear that the sound correlates exactly with the image as you sweep through it, right? So it's not like it's trying to illustrate an underlying principle or process. Yeah, people still... They still miss it? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I don't read comments. Ha <laughs> Good. <laughs> don't. Okay, well, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, which is why I... I... I'm always just like, just be really clear about what this is, because people don't read. <laughs> mm. Well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Yeah, if you don't read the words. I mean, I think you mentioned the LIGO, and at some point, I, we should probably do a whole episode about yeah. LIGO, but we did mention that as a good one, and I think part of why that one's a good one is because the sounds are so counterintuitive to the processes yeah. that, like, you know, I don't know anybody who... He, hears them as actual things. So what is happening with LIGO? So LIGO is detecting gravitational waves, which I won't even begin to try to explain because it's Einstein and complicated. <laughs> but like the idea is that you have two black holes that smoosh into each other and they create literally waves in space-time mm -hmm. that we call gravitational waves. And then these detectors find them. And the thing is that when black holes do this, the technical term for the curve of the data is a chirp. And that's it's a sound word. It's not from the sonification, but it's from the, the fact that it rises in volume and in frequency. We can put one in here. We'll put one in. And it's natural to sonify a chirp, mm -hmm. right? And again, like the pulsar thing, the frequencies of these waves are very much like audible frequencies in sound, except they're not sound waves, they're gravitational waves. And the thing is, when you hear one, you hear that it is nothing like what your imagination would tell you colliding black holes should sound like. It's adorable. And that is not... <laughs> adorable is not the word one uses to describe colliding black holes. So it's been really kind of delightful because... It's one of the best examples of astrophysical data sonification, both in terms of bringing you closer to the physics, right? You can imagine the black holes in these final moments spinning faster until whoop, oblivion, mm -hmm. right? Or a new black hole, most likely. Mm -hmm. And also because I have detected, I mean, again, I don't read so many comments, but I have detected very little misunderstanding. Very few people hear that and be like, that's what black holes sound like? No. 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 It's kind of key what you were kind of getting at earlier with this idea of what is authentic, you know, presentation of something. Because we've talked about this before that 
say from an artist's point of view versus a scientist's point of view, if you're an artist, you know, the goal is to get something as authentic and close to whatever the original intent is, right? I mean, depending on who you are, with as little mediation as possible. But in science, it's not possible to have, to like really, you know, understand something in its essence without any kind of mediation at all, right? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe this is cynical, but (laughs) I might position the artist a little bit differently in that rather than necessarily trying to to say something authentic, because sometimes you're actually not, right? Sure. I would say that you're 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 trying to convince an audience, mm. right? Like you're trying to bring enjoyment, make them feel something. You're supposed to you're trying to render an emotional effect, right? Maybe. Well, usually, <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, of course, there are artists who fall on this spectrum of <laughs> caring or not caring, right? Yeah. About about intent or audience effect. But I think in all of these cases, you have very few musicians who operate really like scientists where they want the results of their work to be an objective truth. Mm -hmm. Because even in the most abstractly constructed music, there might be objective truths behind its construction, but the act of hearing the piece or performing the piece, that's not an abstract thing. That's a real thing that has emotions Mm -hmm. attached to it. Yeah, which makes it really interesting when you start thinking about sonification that is used as composition. So we've talked about it as it's used in science and science communication, but there are, you know, sound artists and composers who very heavily use data sonifications, not only like incorporated into musical pieces, but as musical pieces. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? Oh, um, well, the one that I worked the hardest on was... I used data about the spectrum of the solar atmosphere mm-hmm. and used that to determine aspects of the pit structure, rhythms, and forms of a string quartet movement. Hmm. Is that actually sonification? Because we were talking earlier about spectralism and the s- spectralists, you know, using computer analysis of timbre and kind of isolating the partials and the harmonics that make up certain timbres and then creating pieces that are based on those things. I think it's different. I think in this example of mine, Mm -hmm. it's not, so first of all, it is explicitly a string quartet. It is not a product of data sonification, Mm -hmm. right? But I would say that, yes, I did sonify the data because Mm -hmm. I've taken actual numbers that represent physical reality and rendered them in sound. Gotcha. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's just one example. I've done a couple others, but that's the one I did the most math for. So mm-hmm. it's what comes to mind. Gotcha. <laughs> hmm. The one that, that I always keep coming back to is uh, Alvin Lucier's Spherics, which yeah. is very direct a, a recording of um, radio waves coming from the ionosphere of the Earth. And if you listen to it, it sounds like static. With an occasional, like... Yeah, because there's, like, lightning going (laughs) on up there and everything. So it's interesting to consider that as an artwork, Mm. right? Because basically what the artist has done is he's taken this thing and he's framed it as an artwork. 
And so that calls into question, you know, I, I mean, maybe this is not a good question to even think about, like, can that be considered music? But to what extent can it do the thing that music does? Because you were talking earlier about, like, musicians wanting to evoke a kind of emotional or subjective effect. And maybe that does provoke a, an emotional effect in people, one of tedium. <laughs> <laughs> well, that counts. <laughs> But like, <laughs> but why would you want someone to feel tedium with regard to, you know, lightning happening in the ionosphere? Well, but that's where I would be cautious about ascribing intent to Lucier, yeah. right? I mean, we know like Cage was interested in inducing tedium, yeah, right? But I mean, I think Lucier falls under the category of pioneers in data sonification, right? Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in part because he's one of the first people to perform the act of taking something from the realm of objective observation and putting it in the context of artistic experience. Whether or not it's successful as an art piece is another story, mm-hmm. right? You, it sounds like, would, do, would not find it to be a super successful artwork, which is fine. I don't know. I, I mean, still find it very interesting, though. Yeah. Well, and I don't think he, I mean, Spherix is not going on Lucier's greatest hits. I don't think he thought it was his greatest artwork ever either. No. But but it's an amazing exercise, mm-hmm. you know, especially considering when he did it and the fact that he had to build all the equipment himself, you yeah, know. That's true. And actually, I think maybe this kind of just draws attention to something that we don't think about a lot, which is that data visualization is both a science and an art and that art is very critical to the scientific process because if you can't communicate something in a way that is you know makes sense to the human (laughs) i like to tell the story about when i was doing my master's thesis in astronomy and i i had a plot with many many colors for good reason it needed many colors but one of the comments from my committee was that there were too many shades of blue. Mm-hmm. It needed to have, you know, a better distinction between these different groups of things I was plotting. And I had spent hours custom designing all of the colors. So to me, this was like <laughs> an artistic affront. But, you know, but yeah, from a science perspective, you know, I understood also it needed to communicate something very, very clearly. And it's funny because we don't, in scientific training, we don't really talk about the aesthetics of data presentation, right? We, it's not like you have a wing in the the Chicago Art Museum dedicated to charts. No, but there should be. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there there are people who, of course, do specialize in data visualization, mm-hmm. and I have multiple books of like great examples of charts and graphs through history, right? Like it, it actually is an art, yeah, but. I think in the sciences, one doesn't approach those things as art forms. One mm-hmm. approaches them as the most efficient means of conveying information, conveying data. And that's where sonification has this kind of superpower because not only is there an immediacy of experience, but its ability to convey time-dependent processes mm-hmm. is unmatched in the visual realm. I mean, that is if there is any distinction between the visual arts and the aural arts, it's the time dimension. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why the LIGO sonifications are so successful, because those black hole mergers happen on audible human timescales, whereas a lot of other astronomical things don't. Mm-hmm. 
So that people would sonify still images, for example, it's kind of like, well, that's the best we can do because we can't actually watch the galaxies evolve. Mm. You know, you kind of create time out of these static objects. Hmm. I mean, I think more scientists probably should be trained in the aesthetics of data visualization and perhaps will have a future where they are also trained in audio. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I really do, going back to the cynical mode for a second, you know, the movie Contact hinges on the heroine plugging her headphones into radio telescopes and listening to them, and which is not a thing, for the record. <laughs> that is not a thing. Sorry, world. Um, <laughs> it is also not a thing in Carl Sagan's book because he would not have done that. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I do like to imagine a world, a future, though, where when appropriate, certain kinds of data are sonified and people are trained to analyze with their ears mm -hmm. as well as they are trained to analyze graphs and plots with their eyes. Because I do think there are some phenomena that when rendered orally would be far more vivid than when we render them visually. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that speaks to part of why we're being a little bit critical of this thing right now. Like it obviously has potential mm -hmm. and it just needs to be developed and used responsibly. Yes. Cosmophonians <laughs> for the responsible, for responsible, for responsible sonification. sonification. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 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 Well, because also, like, if you're going to convince scientists to use it, then you need to, like, show that it can be used in communication without misinforming the public. Yeah. I mean, I think that this misinformation in scientific communication is kind of a larger issue. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could go on rants about all kinds of clickbaity articles I've seen from Smithsonian and then I go and actually like read the actual study and it's like, this is not what this is about at all. Yeah. But anyway, I did want to talk about maybe one other kind of artistic potential of sonification. And maybe this has little to do with its use in the sciences, but I think it can be used to very effectively. Like my favorite example of this is actually using pulsars. So piece is called Le Noir de l'Etoile by Gerard Griset, and it's a percussion piece that part of it uses, you know, a taped recording of a pulsar. And then the other part, you're supposed to use a live broadcast of someone who is recording a pulsar that spins, I think, 1.4 rotations every second. So, like a nice pace to be a metronome right and you know he's very explicit about this that the piece is supposed to be making music with the universe mm. so like you know while the universe is taking out this rhythm you as the performers are also you know playing with it and i think that that's a fun concept it is a fun concept especially because as a artwork it doesn't bear the burden of explaining what is happening. Yeah, and I mean, he, he does write in the program note, like, what a pulsar is and, like, you know, how it's been 
transferred into sound and everything. So I think that that's nice. But yeah, he just got really creative with it and was like, you know, this is a thing that's happening right now. And it, it really makes you think imaginatively about the universe, even if it's, you know, maybe not communicating some specific data or whatever. That's part of what I, why I, ultimately I'm optimistic about this despite mm -hmm. any missteps that happen now. I mean, you know, those the LIGO chirps are adorable. There are lots of sonifications that have happened that are aesthetically pleasing in and of themselves, even beyond astronomy. I mean, you can sonify any, we started this conversation by sonifying a rock. So, <laughs> um, so like there's, you can sonify anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I do love that idea that as sonic objects, they become aestheticizable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's artistry in the visual presentation of data. Sure. Mm -hmm. And in astronomy, we often have the luxury of saying, well, the data is implicitly beautiful. <laughs> right. But I went to a colloquium with a science journalist once who was talking about writing about science. And he said something like, well, you know, there are a lot of really great scientific results that are very hard to write about because we're not putting a picture of a spectrogram on the cover of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of true. Yeah. But I do like to live in a world where maybe an associated sound object exists, right? Because then you don't care if it's a graph. You don't care that it's coming from data. If it sounds cool, it sounds cool, mm -hmm. right? And it's far easier for people to encounter sounds that they think are attractive and sounds that trigger their imagination than it is to encounter a, a really kicking plot, you know? <laughs> um. <laughs> In some ways, looking into all of this really reminds me of how connected not only scientists, but also these artists who are working with sonifications are to their quadrivium forebears, <laughs> you know, because the musicians or the philosophers working within the quadrivium tradition, they were using both scientific observation, but also knowledge of musical systems to, I mean, maybe they didn't discover some kind of objective truth, but they did put them together in ways that corresponded. And like, this is the work that they were doing. Um, it's called speculative music. A lot of people working in that tradition came up with these systems where they would align certain musical aspects with certain astronomical aspects. Like, you know, each planet gets a note. Like, that's the very basic form of that. But there are a lot of these systems where, you know, they were not necessarily being like, well, yes, Mars emits the note B. But they were saying that these things correspond in a way that when we put them together, it gives us a greater understanding and appreciation of the beauty of the universe, you know? And I feel like sonification is kind of a distant descendant of that practice, you know? You're translating certain observed things into certain sound things. And I don't know if a scientist would necessarily put it this way, but I think part of the goal is to achieve both a an objective and an aesthetic appreciation and understanding 
of this universe that we live in, 